Spirited Creatives with AI Podcast. The spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Creatives with AI Podcast. I'm your host, David. And on today's show, we have Adam Mart. Adam's a professional sound engineer by training who spent 18 years at the BBC before founding his own production business in 2020. He's worked in a variety of production and operations roles over the years and has had a front row seat for some of the biggest leaps in production technology the world has ever seen. And Adam and I met on a phone call the other day that was predicated off of or started from a conversation that we had in a WhatsApp group uh, talking about how to price uh, supporting podcasts and and working on larger productions. And, And Adam very kindly uh, hopped on a phone call with me and, and went through a bunch of stuff. And then we had a, I think we were on the, we ended up being on the phone for almost an hour talking about all sorts of podcasting stuff and AI and production history. And I just thought, man, I got to have you on the show. So welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks very much. It's really good. lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 18 years at the BBC. That's a good run. <laughs> yeah, I, I was lucky. Um, I, I started out as a as a white van man in London after moving down from uh the north of England in rural north of England um where I played violin at school I played drums at school and and I started out as a white van man uh, having been at university um with my popular music and music technology degree you know thinking I'm going to make it big straight away um <clears throat> and next thing you know uh you've got to pay the rent so I got my job as a white van man and uh, luckily, the company who I was careering for um, was a, a recording studio company that had A&R and all these various kind of facets to it. Um, it was owned by Iron Maiden. And so they had kind of big names coming. Through. Oh, wow. Uh, it was crazy. Um, and it was brilliant. You know, we had a, um, a 64-track SSL studio, one of the top 10 studios, mixed studios in London. Uh, all the big names came through. We were charging £800 a day. Um, and the accountants then came in and said, look, per square meter in London, we can make more money for the company than you're making as a studio. And we were rammed, right? Um, but at that point, we were using um, a lot of two-inch tape. Um, and so I was well-versed in the dark art of kind of lining up tape machines. And um, my job as a T-boy at that point would be to be on point at four in the morning when the band um, had finished their day's recording um, to make sure that everything that they captured was then captured a quarter inch. Um, and we also used a digital system called Radar, um, but there was a tiny, tiny room downstairs, which was getting absolutely rammed and rinsed constantly. And that was where the money was being made. And that was because there was a tiny, tiny little bit of software that they'd introduced into that studio called Pro Tools. And we didn't have that at that point anyway, upstairs, we had this radar system. So everyone was doing all of their stuff in their bedroom, bringing it to that studio for mixing and for mastering. Um, and chucking it out, predominant dance stuff at that time, because we were kind of a, a rock and an indie studio upstairs. Um, oh, okay, I got you. I was about to say that. that yeah, at quite the time. early for like recording in your bedroom and then bringing it in. But I yes. could see if it was sort of dance tracks and like EDM and that sort of thing. That, Absolutely. That, that, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that going on downstairs and that room was just making the big money, right? So so my room upstairs. Um, Sorry, when was this? Did you say? So this that? is around about 2000, 2001. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and so I then, I mean, we, it was an absolutely beautiful studio. Rumor has it, it cost two million pounds to make in the eighties. All the cables were in kind of lead lining. It was, it was a beautifully crafted studio and the head engineer at that time. So by the time, you know, we got to the point of closure, um, the engineer who I was working to have moved on, I then became engineer and setting up session, sessions and mixing my own sessions and all that kind of working with really good names, bands. And it was, it was awesome. Right. But, um, so when they closed that down, I then thought, right, either. I can take advantage of the opportunities being presented to me by the company and go and work in the archiving department. Um, or I can phone up um, my local BBC studio back in the Lake District where I'm from and see how to get into the BBC. Because um, that seems like a nice solid job and it's got you know great career prospects, yada, yada. So I uh, phoned them up and they said, oh, hang on, are you that guy who um, came and was a bit nosy in the broadcast truck when we came to record your school years ago, because there aren't that many tech types who get interested. And it was like, yeah, that's me. Like, oh my God. Turns out um, there's a guy called Adam who's leaving a job at Radio Cumbria to go and do this new thing called online media. Um, 
And so we've got a vacancy for a guy to come and uh, work on broadcast desks, do outside broadcasting type stuff in the Lake District. Um, do you want to come up and chat? So did that, thankfully got the job, went back home and worked there um, in that area for four years, then came to, to the BBC um, and then spent another 14 years working in network radio um, at Radio 1, Radio 2, Six Music in the operations capacity. So we were driving the broadcast desks for outside broadcasts um, for you know the big set piece uh programs and events like glastonbury and reading and ibiza and all that kind of stuff you know going out to tiny little places recording and uh, broadcasting from um the middle of absolutely nowhere sometimes but um bringing absolutely beautiful content to the masses um and that 14 years was an absolute uh game changer because yes you're absolutely right in your intro thanks for that <laughs> i made me blush um that that was um a very pivotal time um in the evolution of the tech side of the industry um, for, for the industry as a whole, really, because we went from kind of linear broadcasting using you know, infrastructures that have been placed for, for some significant time um, through to um, the use of 3G and 4G um, to get signals back where it used to be down copper wires via BT. Um, we were broadcasting um, using the internet from Ibiza um for, for live shows instead of using you know you know wide infrastructures um which which was amazing um and gave us so much flexibility it had its own problems 7 p.m didn't know this until i worked for radio one 7 p.m historically is when um a lot of the businesses on ibiza decide to chuck all their um financial transactions back to the mainland for processing interesting yeah i can see of where course. this is going <laughs> so you've got pete tong live on radio one at 7 p.m on a friday big dance show and next thing you know who falls off air um because it's all gone a bit wrong because all this data is being chucked off the island and we're using the internet as well so it's literally gone pete tong it literally <laughs> yes well done um, sorry i had to do that no 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 you were not the first and you won't be the last but it's still funny um and so so then, you know, we became uh, we had to talk about kind of um, uh, ring fencing bandwidth and all this. Kind of. Then, you know, then there's the advent of the visual radio team um, and people thinking, well, what is visual radio? And you know, there was a strategy around it. And the strategy then for Radio One had to incorporate um, screens um, and putting content on screens. And then we put um, cameras in studios and then, of course, social media comes along. So Radio One doesn't then become just a radio studio, it becomes a brand. Um, and you know, as a result of all that, then the following, then uh, I think I was there when Radio One had more followers in the social spaces than it had listeners, and there was that proper zeitgeist moment and culture shift, and that was that was incredible. Um, um, and so, and then I moved to um, to start my own company in 2020 um, after nine months um, as a managing director um, for another production company, Studio Facility. I was there for nine months um, after being established for quite some time um, because COVID comes along and the model which was in place before, which was destined to shift anyway, couldn't shift fast enough and we had to close the studios down. So first wave of COVID, I'm thinking, right, either I start my own thing up um, with um, my now business partner or uh, I try and apply for a new job um, in the first wave of COVID when everybody was trying to apply for a new job and there was nothing going. So... So we started that up um, and we've been trading ever since um, in the main quite successfully, thank goodness, um, delivering uh, podcast and TV audio production facilities to those industries. Um, and and all through that time, so since the, you know radio, uh, since Radio Cumbria days, um, there's been a, a kind of a constant thread that's flowed through um, all those changes of evolution in the tech sector um, and what that has then meant for people who make the stuff and people who consume the stuff. Um, and so this is a really interesting discussion because for me, um, as we all know, content is is king. You know, there's, there's Dave in a cave on one side of the valley and then there's Pete on the other side of a cave on the other side of the valley and Dave shouting across to Pete, right, I've got a caribou. Do you want to come across for a barbecue? So that message has been you know, conveyed by one person to another. How that message then is able to flow is academic almost because it will change in time. 
that's the one certainty with everything that we do is that whatever we do will not be doing it, especially at the moment, in the same way in the in a prescribed amount of time. Next week. No, <laughs> at the moment, who knows? I mean, I I might be kind of on a on a physical screen in front of you in a few years' time. You know, exactly. Um, kind of a, an iteration It'll of be holograms. Have you exactly. seen the hologram boxes? No. Where you can um, sorry, slight diversion, but mm. um, what they are is they're like a they're like the size of a small like a tiny closet, like the size of one person. Yeah. And it has a screen on the front. And what you do is you record one person on one end and it creates like a 3D hologram on the other end. And it is amazing. I saw it at a, at a show in Amsterdam a few years ago Mm. and literally out of the corner of my eye, I thought it was someone standing in a, like a lit box to just to get attention and handing out like brochures or something. And I walked past this box probably 10 times and literally just thought that there was someone in there. I, never even occurred to me right. that it wasn't actually a person because immediately it, my mind is then going to you know how does that manifest itself for yeah. meetings or, or exactly gigs or, well they're they're, they're trialing it in a school so i saw a mm. similar technology and i apologize i can't remember the name of the company mm-hmm. who i saw first but i will put it in the show notes mm-hmm. so that people can go and check it out because it's amazing um but i saw a, an article on linkedin yesterday or day before where they were talking about they're trialing it in schools because what they can do is they can set this box up in a classroom and they can have a teacher from like MIT or mm-hmm. Stanford teach a class in the in. UK. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. what they can do is they can put a camera on the top so the person on the other end can have a screen in front of them mm-hmm. and they can see the classroom and they can interact. So if a student raises their hands, they can call on the student. They can give real-time answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're... I mean, it's really, really cool. It's really interesting because I think what the thing that boggles my mind <clears throat> with all all this is that there are almost kind of two facets to it, aren't there? There was the the ability for humanity to be increasingly creative with the tools that are available to them. So you know, take my industries for example. Um, you've gone from having to spend big budget on hiring really good studios to create incredibly sounding content, which then gets chucked out to the masses. There's less of that content because it costs more to make. So Christmas hits, for example, um, we've all got a million Christmas, well, not a million, that's, I guess that's my point, a handful of Christmas hits that immediately come to mind um, from the 1780s and 90s, and they get regurgitated every single year. Um, because the price point of entry to that market to be able to record that was expensive um, because the gear cost a lot of money. It cost a lot of time to hire those studios, yada, yada. Fast forward to 2000 when I started and you got Pro Tools and then you know people started getting little um, boxes in their bedrooms and they could record their own stuff. So the price point of entry to the tech was reduced. More people could do it, more content got created, more difficult to find the content so therefore, the chances of you getting a successful Christmas number one hit are reduced. So therefore, how are we going to get those Christmas classics in, well, what this Christmas classic is going to be in five, 10 years time, right? Case in point. That's the first aspect, is price point event of uh, entry to the tech gets reduced. Tech is available to the masses. More people create. There's more stuff out there, more noise, more traffic, more difficult to find the content. So whatever you've got to produce has to be best in class whatever that metric is, whether that's content and production quality, however that's measured. Second is the, and I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to purport to be, and this is a proper broad brushstroke comment, but the psychological effects of of what we're facilitating haven't yet been manifest. We haven't had enough time to live with what we're allowing ourselves to achieve and do and create to really understand, I don't think, what the effects are going to be. So my um, my lad, he's um, just started secondary school and he is um, really getting to, into using his phone because he can buy a secondhand phone because it's cheap um, to, um, to adjust images that he's taking using um, AI software on his phone. And images. So 
he was here the other day. It's a picture of him and his friend. Um, and he adjusts this picture of them pushing their bike somewhere. Um, so there is a, um, a mountain in the background and, and there's all this kind of bits and bobs um, happening around him, which weren't there in the original picture, right? And he says, look at this, isn't it amazing, Dad? And I'm going, actually, you know what? That's quite incredible. Um, because it looked so real um, that it was difficult to, to ascertain which was the real and which wasn't. So um, I then see a picture on Facebook um, of Blackpool Tower. Um, and because it's been really, really windy recently, because of the recent storms, um, this picture is a Blackpool Tower, like literally bent over in the wind. It's like it's a tree, right? Um, like it's it's really struggling to stay upright. It's properly bent over to the point of collapse. Um, and I send that through to my little lad and say, look at this. Isn't this amazing? How windy has it been in Blackpool recently? Dot, dot, dot. He writes back and says, crikey, OMG, lol. And I know it's really windy. I said, that, that's incredible. Did it fall down, he says. So, of course, from a psychological perspective, he's not able to differentiate between what's real and what's not. But that's nothing new. Because in, um, in my Radio 1 days, we were broadcasting live sessions where a guitarist might have been at Made of Ale and the singer might have been in a studio in LA somewhere. And we brought them together in real time and broadcast it live as if they're in the same space. Really? Yeah, because you can do that, right? Because of the internet. That's amazing that there was that the latency little was... lag that they could do. I mean, I guess if you're Isn't a professional it? and you know what you're doing, yeah. then you can do that. But still, do you know what I mean? For for me, as an amateur musician who can't like sing and play guitar at the same time, yep. um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I find that Give incredible. it time, you'll be fine. Just keep practicing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, That's what you know, everybody that, keeps telling the me. Tech, uh, but the tech was expensive. Yeah. So that's why yeah, only yeah, a few yeah. people could do it. Yeah. Um, but then go back further in time and this kind of perception of what's real and what's not. So I'm talking to a friend of mine who has nothing to do with media industry whatsoever or audio. He just likes you know, consuming content. And he was bemoaning the fact that um, one of the programs that we were broadcasting late night on Radio 1 um, was pre-recorded. It's like, what am I paying my license for? He was kind of, you know, <laughs> ribbing me a little bit, but still. Um, and he said, well, hang on a minute. So when you watch EastEnders, do you assume that's live? Because that's pre-recorded too. And so there's this notion now, and it goes back, you know, there are a million and one stories that you can, you can recall, go far back as you like. This notion of what's real and what's not. When you listen to a record, do you think that that group of people play those instruments at the same time in the same place? I think so, some people do because that's how exactly. it was done in the beginning. Exactly. And, and there's so been nothing you to assume say. that that's how it's done now. But Completely. I I mean, even I know it's not necessarily but, done but that way But it's a percentage of the population. Yeah. I don't know what percentage would assume that it actually did happen. Right. right. Or whether yeah. actually anybody actually questions it, really. Or cares. Or cares. And this is the thing. This is the crucial aspect of it. It's like, so what is the public? Well, what is the personal benchmark of quality what is the understandings which lead to that and which of those matter to those individuals enough for them to care about if those are either changed altered or remain the same um so when it comes to podcasts for example so now um the company that um i um i founded um we have um guests of ours and presenters of ours all around the world i mean we're doing it now so you're not in the same space as me um, and we're by the process of some kind of weird ethereal magic. A company or, that's in Israel. So all or, this is being recorded physically in Israel and then sent back to us later. Of course. Um, this, this is permitted through the development of, of tech over some considerable time, investment, all the stuff that you know you need to make a product as reliable and stable as it needs to be for the masses to actually want to engage with it. Um, and so the podcast that we produce, um, not just our company, like every single company under the sun who you know, produces similar kinds of content, they will edit it. So what is actually heard mightn't actually be what was actually recorded. The elements of it taken out, it's been, it's the same in print. You know, I said something, well, we're going to take what you said here, put it in a different sentence. So there's this notion of reality. Um, and what actually happened versus what the um, distributor 
wants to convince the audience actually happened. So the psychological element of, um, of that relationship between content creation and the tech that you, um, that you have at your disposal to be able to create that, um, on one hand is shifting because it permits different things, but the core values stay the same. What happened? What do you want your audiences to believe happened? Um, so there's Dave and Paul on their, um, on their respective sides of the valley. And there's no ambiguity there because that message hasn't been in inverted commas edited between Dave saying and Paul receiving. Put two or three of the people in there, Chinese whispers comes into play. Those two or three people nowadays can be classed as technology. Yeah, no, 100%. And I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned the psychological part of it as well, because that's something that I've really wanted to dig into that I haven't, I haven't found the right person to talk to about that. Am I not the I right person? <laughs> no, no, it's great. But I'm, I'm, but I'm glad people are thinking about it, but I want to have like a, like a proper clinical psychologist on, mm. um, you know, I'm aiming for Jordan Peterson, but yeah. I think that might yeah. take a while. Okay, um, go for it. Aim high. Why not? You... I'm, I might need a bigger audience before I can have uh, JP on. But, but anyway, I, I, th I think that there's a lurking. I think there's a lurking issue that's coming behind all of this, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned sort of the history of it because I think people who've never who've never been involved in the process, like I've never been in the involved in the process of recording music, for mm -hmm. example, like an album. But a couple of years ago, I went to Helsinki and nice. I went in a studio with a friend because he asked me to do a little bit of voiceover for one of their songs. And he said, oh, you know, I've got this studio and, you know, it'd be cool if you'd come in and, you know, would you mind doing it? Because they wanted like a Southern preacher kind of thing, which being from Memphis, I, you you know, I figured, well, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah, give okay, it a go. Yeah. And uh, it was actually quite funny because I was super self-conscious back then and it took ages. But what... The cooler thing about that whole experience was, first of all, I rocked up and I expected him to have like a small like studio in his house or something. Mm -hmm. No, they had like a 2,500 square foot studio with three separate recording areas, a living yeah. room, a, like proper, you know what I mean? Like yeah, a yeah. proper studio and everything. And it was, that was quite cool, first of all. But what I didn't realize is, is <clears throat> his guitarist was there. And he was trying to lay down a guitar track and he literally played a, about a three or four second piece of music 500 times trying to get it exactly the way that he wanted it. Mm -hmm. And then he would put that in and he'd go, okay, cool. And then he'd go to the next little bar and he'd try that like 300 times yep. and he'd get it exactly the way he wanted it. And I was fascinated watching it because I'd only ever done... I'd only ever seen live music mm -hmm. and I'd only ever done, I had done a little bit of TV back when I was younger mm -hmm. for the public TV station when I was a kid, but that was live TV. Mm -hmm. So I'd never seen anything really pre-recorded and, and what the process was like of how you actually do that. Yeah. And since then I've been, obviously I do the podcast now. So, but I, the way I do the interview style, it's not heavily edited like you said, you know, I'll, I'll cut out little things like, you know, if Amazon delivery comes or something, I'll, I'll cut that out. But generally I like to just keep Good it so. as, as unedited as possible. Yeah. But I know a lot of the scripted shows are, are heavily edited and a lot of the other shows. And we, I think we talked about this the other day. It's like, mm. you know, Joe Rogan, once you sort of understand how to see edits and you can hear it, you start to realize that for trained. a show that seems really <clears throat> casual, it's it's probably edited a lot actually yeah, and that takes effort and skill and knowledge and expertise right exactly yeah exactly it's interesting that you talked about that because i think a lot of people don't understand how contrived isn't the right word but it's the yeah. one that came into my head but it's that's not the right one but it's 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 tailored and shaped and molded yeah. into and everybody expects that from a film because they know mm -hmm. films are filmed out of order and all sorts of stuff. And then, mm -hmm. you know, the magic happens in the editing room, yep. I think, a lot of times. And so people don't really I don't think people really realize kind of how much that goes on with everything, music and all that. But it the interesting psychological bit for me is also around the availability of all these tools, because like you said, a few years ago, someone trying to create a, a video and put it online. I mean, even in the mid 2000s, when YouTube was just getting its start, you know, 
that was prohibitively expensive because you didn't have an inexpensive, you know, I spent, I don't know, 600 pounds on a, on a small, you know, Sony camera, digital camera that records amazing video. I mean, the quality of this video, you couldn't have got this 20 years ago on anything other than almost probably a film camera. And that's made, that's opened up this whole world to all this stuff. And again, my, my sort of thing about it is, is, is with the advent of AI on top of that and what you were talking about with your son, now we're getting into the realms of people can create anything and then you get into the world of deep fakes. So I, I am bringing this around eventually, but, but now you're in a situation where you can change a video of, of someone else and make them say something different than what they actually said at the time. And no, basically no one would know. And that's a, there, I think there's going to be a lot of potential issues around that. And they're going to be more about, it is the psychology behind it though. It's the, what can I believe? What can I believe? I mean, I think we're going to get to a point probably in the next five to 10 years where you literally will not be able to believe anything that you see or hear. I, <clears throat> so in, in my career, I think everything that I've helped other people create. So I work in an operations capacity, right? So my job is to, to bring people together, to get the stuff done. Um, and everything that I've helped content producers create has been created in order to help listeners feel something and have an emotional response to something, whether that's what make them, you know, have a feeling of escapism um, because they listen to Radio 1 Essential Mix um, or they're listening to um, some politicians who used to be on the opposite sides of the dispatch box, you know, um, talking to each other and thrashing stuff out. You know, it's been an emotional response to something. You know, you put on your favourite piece of music in the day and it can change your mood instantly. So everything that's being created nowadays is either consciously or subconsciously evoking some kind of emotional response, right? And I get the feeling that, well, there's a movement at the moment called the anti-edit movement where content is purposefully being created with rough edges. So it's not been polished and it hasn't been edited to give it that slightly more human feel. So people are more inclined to believe that it is authentic and that what you're actually hearing actually happened or what you're watching actually happened. But this isn't new, right? Immediately, my mind goes back to the advent of Big Brother um, and the notion or the feel or the assumption that what you are actually watching actually happened. Um, and to a point it did, but of course then it comes out once, you know, you start to delve a little bit deeper, or if you care about this kind of thing, that there were kind of script editors in the background and choosing moments from those millions of hours that were recorded across series um, to create storylines. Then it comes out in the papers, of course, that, you know, some storylines might be manipulated, um, but then again, there's an assumption, there's a feel that what you're watching is actually rawer and more authentic um, than something that has been polished and what you assume, because you have that knowledge um, as, as a layperson. Um, that, okay, no, I see that, you know, there's a film here, as you said, the film is likely to have been edited. There's a lot of people around it. There's different kind of production values in play here. Um, then you have platforms like Be Real coming through. Um, which younger generations have really taken to. I don't know how it's performing nowadays. I haven't heard as much about it, but things like Snapchat and Be Real and then WhatsApp and having the auto deletion of their messages after being read, you know. Um, all these uh, new facets that are coming in, new systems and platforms um, and ways of interaction, which are actively engaging users and encouraging users to to make it look as though that what they're actually creating is authentic and real and actually happened because there's, there's this kind of this anti-edit movement where there's a, there's an assumption that people are actually getting a bit sick of the contrived, as you say, or the manufactured 
Overproduced. But, yeah. But, so that's on one side. This is how my brain works. You might get to know this. It's literally backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, across the fence, right? So Perfect. on the other side. Awesome. <laughs> I, at some point, I need to commit either way. I haven't done that yet. I'll just let you go. <laughs> oh, well, I, I could go forever to so stop me, right? Um, but on the other side of the spectrum, then there's an absolute need um, for the highest production values to be allowed to surface um, and for people to consume these to know what best in class could look and feel like. Um, so planet Earth, for example, you know, um, mass budget, huge amounts of time required to capture the most intimate moments of nature, um, which might take months or even years. They might only happen once in a, in a, in a, in a, in a generation, you know, but to be there and to have the skill and be ready when that moment comes takes untold amounts of resources across the spectrum, personal resilience, all that kind of stuff, right? And that then is heralded as best in class in that moment. Um, the results of that, very much like Kevlar on a spaceship, the results of that then trickle down through the layers to the everyday. So without those production values, without those beautiful um, lenses on those cameras, which have the capacity to capture those moments in clarity, which we would never imagine, we probably wouldn't have the type of lenses that we have on our mobile phones. So there is this process of technical evolution, which then filters down to the everyday in the same way that Kevlar on a spaceship now finds itself on our pots and pans in our kitchen. Without the money and time and knowledge and, uh, that was invested in creating those products, we wouldn't. Have. So there is this idea that we have to have best in class and there should be a way for the best ideas to work alongside best in class. Um, and then for those skills, not just in the content creators, but in the, in the kind of the engineers and the IT and all the kind of support networks around it to be able to, um, to stretch themselves and to grow um in line and it's 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 a very symbiotic relationship grow in line with audience expectation but also um and you know if you cut me bbc still bleeds out of me um to create content that the audiences will never expect you know this is exactly the same as when steve jobs released the imac which um so the apple uh, which i think was you know i, I can't remember I mean, was it 40 years ago today um that or when it was the iPhone came out, people kind of no idea, absolutely no idea that this could be a thing. Same with the iPod. Um, all the, you know, we could name a load of them off our heads, you know, all these technical advances that have come along. People have gone, I had no idea that people could even think that that was a possibility. But they did, they developed it, and now we just can't live without them. Um, and those kind of those kind of things. And the same is true for AI, right? So um, AI is allowing us to to do things, to work on things, to deliver things, um, to streamline processes, to free up time to allow us to do the stuff that we need to do elsewhere. Um, but we go back to the psychology of it, and we don't necessarily know yet what implications that will have, but I do know that my little lad um, will be actively using it in ways which I don't even know about yet. You know, there will be jobs that he will have available to him, which I have got no idea even exists. We don't know exist. Um, and I think for my industry at the moment, there's a, there's an, it's an interesting moment because, you know, I've got engineers, um, I say I, it's our company, we have engineers um, that are working with us and are starting to want to bring in tools which um, are driven by AI. Um, and we're listening to them and thinking, wow, that's mightily impressive. Not necessarily the right use of them in this context, because the human ear still needs to be able to decide whether that is actually the right choice to make, or whether there's a, there's a more traditional way which might sound better, struck different, and qualify better. People say vinyl, <laughs> here we go. People say, people say vinyl sounds better than, I don't know, CD or MP3 or whatever. Um, but I think what people don't necessarily understand is that the process that's, um, that is used to create that vinyl inhibits or as artif adds artifacts 
to the original recording to make it sound different. And there's a, there's a direct correlation there between what people think is better and people think is different. And they don't have, and this is this is the case, right? So they don't necessarily have the lexicon to be able to say how it's different or how it's better. They just feel it. And this is why I'm saying earlier on about the feet, the emotional response to the content and the stuff that we create. We the, the lay person shouldn't have the lexicon. In the same way that I don't know uh, when I go uh, to see my doctor exactly what the doctor is going to say and the decisions that they're making in order to give me the information that I need to hear. They're able to say it to me in a way that I understand. Um, and it's the same with the true of audio industry and media industry, you know. The, the lay person shouldn't have that that lexicon if they don't. I mean, there's no reason why they can't. They've got other things to think about. Um, but it is that that feel which overrides everything. No, you're um, absolutely right. That's how I got into tech, funnily enough, is I early in my career when I was very young, I worked in the travel industry and I ended up getting my first job in tech mm -hmm. because they needed somebody. I knew enough about tech to be able to talk to the database guys and the engineers and explain what it was that the person needed. Yeah. But I also could translate for the customer and tell the customer what the engineers mm -hmm. were talking about. And this was back in the early 90s when sort of, you know, client services and that sort of customer yeah. manager Soft role skills. didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, tech companies were just groups of engineers that were building software and they had no idea how to interact with people. Yeah. Um, and so you're absolutely right. You know, there's, there is, that that's a skill in itself. And that's mm -hmm. how I, that's how I got into tech ultimately. And that's why I ended up running teams of consultants and engine and, uh, data analysts and that sort of mm -hmm. thing, because it was, you know, you very much had to have one foot in each camp. Completely. And um, I did, sorry, I want to jump back to one thing though. Sure. And it's, it's something that's come up in my mind a few times as we've gone along. And I remember, right, I want to get your opinion on this okay. and I'll try and make it quick. <laughs> but I remember back, <clears throat> the, the, a good example of this is when digital cameras came out. Mm -hmm. And there was within the within the photography community, there was some like undercurrent almost that using a digital camera was cheating mm -hmm, mm -hmm. somehow. I remember this, yeah. And and it's pro and and I'm assuming that in in the the audio business and in the broadcasting business and everything, you there have probably at every step of evolution of tools, there's been some sort of concept of oh there's this new thing and it's like cheating somehow and i think that was and i remember when again i'm old enough to remember when cds came in and then you got mp3s and mp3 players That's and right. the argument was it was vinyl was better because it was driven off of something physical there's mm -hmm. physical grooves on the disc Tactile. and it's picking that up and it's it's like when you go listen to a band, like we've, we've just taken my son to his first few concerts over the last few years. Brilliant. And, you know, he'd only ever heard music on YouTube and Spotify yep. and all that sort of stuff. And the first time you stand in front of a live band and you feel the music mm -hmm. and you, you can hear the performer actually singing at the same time. And, you know, we were lucky enough to be right at the front so he could actually hear you know, he could hear the the vocals from yep. the people singing. And um, I don't know if you've heard of this band. It's, yeah, of, I don't know if you've heard this band well. called High Lung before. Have no. you heard of High Lung? It, they, they do this crazy, like, tribal type stuff. Anyway, we took him to see High Lung the first time. He's totally ruined to see any other band now because it was <laughs> probably one of the best shows I've ever seen. Oh, man. Well, and, uh, and I've seen all the big bands and I've seen massive stuff like Glastonbury all the way down to, you know, sing, singer-songwriter with a guitar. But yep. anyway, the point was is, is that is that, move, that that moving from, you know, a, li a live experience to an LP and a disc that's still there's still a physical thing to it and as soon as you switch it all to digital that was the argument that it loses something along the way and then and then all the tools come in and then you get the pro tools and then you get Adobe Audition and you get all the different stuff and you've got all this mm -hmm. stuff for video and everything else and it feels like every time we mm -hmm. take this step, and it's the same thing that's happening with AI, which is mm -hmm. the reason that, that, that I'm going here, is that uh, you know people at this point are now viewing AI like it's cheating. 
And I think it's just another evolution of the tools that everybody uses, but it, at the same time, it does feel a little different. So. Sorry, there's a lot to unpack in that. No, 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 not at all. Um, I'm just trying to figure out which order I should comment on. <laughs> but I think, so go back to before the advent of recorded music. Um, and people used to be able to own the music of artists by going down to the, uh, the local music shop and buying printed versions of it. So they bring it home, go into their parlor room on a Sunday and knock out, you know, whatever track it was on there on the piano. <laughs> um, and, and they then were able to own that music as a result of it. And then of course, recording music came in um, and the, um, the publisher industry feared this, um, because it have an impact on sales. Um, because of course their sheet music sales would go down because all this new stuff was being bought and the technology would be created. And there's a whole different sector now being created. Right. Um, I absolutely hear you around the digital camera, uh, uh introduction into the industry. Um, many of my family are heavily into. Uh, photography landscape predominantly in the Lake District and, and, and around the world, um, and and there was I remember there being a big conversation around that at that time as well. You know what was the right thing to do? Was to, was it better to shoot on film? Was was film better because it was more saturated? Of course, there's okay. Well, which type of film do you use? Because some films better than others. So it might be that digital camera version is better than the bad type of film. So, but who would quantify better? What does better look like? What does better feel like right um and then but all all this i think you you say cheating i would offer that we could replace the word cheat with the word fear um because i think when there is an advancement technology and therefore a um an evolution in workflow that comes as a result of that technology um advancement there's a section of the community who cares about the end result, which doesn't want to adapt the ways that they're working in order to produce that end result because they fear that shift and whatever that shift might look like. Um, they might have to update their knowledge. It might mean that they've got to employ new people if they're a business specializing in this kind of thing. It might be that there's a cost implication to it, a training implication to it. Um, without necessarily understanding the benefits to it. Um, and the same is absolutely true of AI. You know, there's, the, there's a section of any industry you care to mention, which would fear the introduction of AI because it's not necessarily aware of what it's able to offer. Um, and also the long-term and short-term implications of using it. Um, would their clients trust the end result? Um, we're finding that um, it's a very mixed economy still because it's a very, very new, um, mass usage phase um to our industry you know people have been using it for quite some time beforehand but not in the way that they have been especially last year and and those words ai have been cropping up in a lot of our conversations and there's been seminars on it and all you know there's been a, a deep dive i hate that phrase why did i use it um <laughs> focus there's been a focus what deep dive <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i've got a list of really annoying management phrases that you hear in meetings that i think people use because they feel comfortable using it because they, they feel part of a club anyway different conversation um but i think there is once once people overcome that fear or they are able to accept and um, balance the notion that it's almost a fait accompli. You know, there will be zeitgeist moments where there's this whole scale shift in the way that people do things. The advent of the microwave, you know, same case in point. Well, why would you want to cook in a microwave? Well, hang on a minute, I can, I can warm up, get a porridge in 15 seconds. Why wouldn't I want to do that? Um, nothing ever stays the same. And that is the beauty of humanity, that humanity is highly creative and we will keep evolving because we keep having these annoying things called ideas. And um, the people kind of go, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's have a go at that. And it turns out to be utterly incredible. Um, and, and you know, my, my brain seems to work in 
Discuss one thing, something else comes to mind, which is linked to it. Cigarettes. People thought cigarettes was a great idea. Further down the line, we discovered that it gives you cancer. Doesn't turn out to be a great idea after all, right? Um, but there's an entire industry about it. And that industry is saying, well, hang on a minute, let's not put the money into cigarettes. Let's put them into e-cigarettes instead, because we can make more money off that. Um, and so everyone shifts over there. And, and so you get these massive big companies, who are then global companies, who are saying, well, hang on a minute, there's money to be made if we invest in AI. You know, case in point, the companies in, you know, abroad. Um, and because and, that's the future. And if we don't jump on the bandwagon now, especially if we're not investing in A and, uh, A and D, uh, sorry, R&D, um, and putting money into developing our products to, to at least make use of AI, if not the whole scale shift across to it, then we're going to fall behind and we're going to die. Um, Kodak, case in point, just died. Um, when the digital camera came out, right? Uh, sorry, Polaroid. Yeah, Polaroid. But but the same. I mean, do you know what I mean? It was uh, all the film companies yeah, yeah. Well, really, really suffered. And and some of them, you know, like Fuji, Fuji had hardware anyway, and so they were able to to kind of hold it together. But the, yeah. the entire film business has collapsed, and now film's enormously expensive compared to what it used to be yeah. but there's a huge resurgence of people going back to using film again and and actually mm -hmm. using film cameras yeah yeah and not and, you know there's a whole notion of kind of cgi and and what allows you to create but you know we um we watched jaws recently for the first time um and of course all in film but it was a story that carried it and this is the common thread through everything, isn't it? As long as your story is strong, then it doesn't matter how you convey it. That will, the, the vehicle is academic. So whether it's, if you use AI, if the, if the idea is strong, that's, that's all that matters. Because in five years time, you're gonna have something else that's gonna replace something, element of it, and the evolution of it is inevitable. Yeah, you're right. And while you were talking, I'd, I'd made a note. And it's interesting that you brought up Jaws because there's a, there's kind of a, a point that ties in there, but one of the things, and again, because you, you're sort of in the, I know you've been more on the audio side, but you'll, you will been a, you know, you will have been across film and stuff as well, but you know, there's been huge discussions about, and this is, I'm sorry for everybody listening. who's not technical, but I'm going to get technical for a second. Um, <laughs> there's this whole battle between, do you frame it? Do you film at 24 frames per second yep. or 30 frames per second? And then what does that look like? And then, there's all these tools that you can use in post-processing to make it look like it was filmed on film yep. and to add the grain back and, you know, to make it softer because film isn't as, you know, 30 or 60, if you do 60 frames per second, you get mm -hmm. super razor sharp video, but it doesn't look, people say it doesn't look real yep. and all these discussions. And it made me think, you know, it's exactly what you were talking about mm -hmm. and using new tools and all that. But I wanted to go back because I, I love I love this as an idea, but do, do you know the story of the new Dune film that came out? No. And why it looks the way it does? No, go on. Have you seen it? No. Ah, okay. Well, this will make it maybe slightly more interesting if you do go to see it. But okay. when you watch it, it doesn't look like it has... I mean, it's enormously CGI'd, right? They did build some physical sets because films are going back to doing big physical sets again because they actually look better. Mm then all the CGI stuff and they don't age so badly. But, um, sorry, that was my watch vibrating on my desk. Um, so what they did is, is he recorded the whole film digitally, did all the special effects and everything. And then they physically printed the digital film onto physical film. Right. They then took that physical film copy that they made and they re-digitized it. <laughs> See, this is really interesting, right? But it it gives it the real film look. But what yeah, it did but is, real. is it... but why? But why real? Qualify real, right? This is this is the point. It gives it a, a look that people are familiar with. It took the funny, you know, CGI has a funny effect in the way that it. Yeah. You know, if you record everything on a sound studio and green yeah. screen, it. There's always these funny edges, as much as you don't want them to be, there are always edges and it you can tell. And particularly as that ages over time, you can really see like some of the older films from, you know, the early nineties and the early two thousands that had loads of CGI in them. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely yeah. horrendous now. But 
what he was trying to accomplish was he was trying to remove that effect. So he he took the digital, put it on actual physical film, and then put it back into digital again. And it has this real as it it seems more real, even though you know that that sandworm is CGI. Yeah, it doesn't look CGI, which is right. really cool. I I'm sitting here bouncing on my chair. So go. Um, when I was a um, working in the recording studio, um, there's so much to unpack there. It's brilliant. And um, when I was working in the recording studio, um, we're at 53 all... minutes, by the way. So just to let you know. I'll keep condensed. Okay, I'll try. I'll keep it sweet. Um, we so Pro Tools just about made it into our studio before we enclosed down, right? <clears throat> and what we used to do when we were recording drums was record the drums onto tape to get the tape saturation, to make them sound big, right? And then we would bounce them out into Pro Tools. So it's the reverse of what you've just said. So to capture that, what people thought was better, in inverted commas, into the digital space to maintain that, in, in, that integrity. Um, but again, it comes down to feel, because if if the audience wasn't familiar, so you know, you you take a, a person who's landed on Earth for the first time, no idea what film is. You put them in front of Doom, and you show them what it would have looked like, just shot on film, if you could, you know, take the CGI out, money wasn't an issue, just shot on film, or just shot on CGI. They have no preconceived ideas. They've got no blueprint as to what is inverted commas better. How would they be able to differentiate which one's better? They wouldn't have that idea as to which one they thought they were most familiar with. Therefore, that must be better because they're more familiar with it. It takes a big leap of faith to kind of go, okay, I'm familiar with that one, but actually this one over here is better to my sensibilities or to to my blueprint of what you know i think this could or should look like um and that's the difficult thing so people still say i mean i will be shot down in flames for this but people still say that vinyl sounds better my argument is always it just sounds different yeah and it does, because I you agree. think it sounds better because that's what you're familiar with you know frequency response all this kind of stuff there's more bass in vinyl true no argument but there are frequencies that are kind of introduced into that process, which allow that. Um, people, I'm sure, will be able to expand on this, and I will probably get shot down in flames, as I say. But that's my interpretation of it, right? Um, and so there are a million and one reasons why people choose to adopt the workflows that they do. Um, all that matters at the end of the day, regardless of the workflow that, or the tech that you choose to invest in, or use or the skills that you used to bring into your productions or your workflow or your, you know, your, your work environment, whatever is, does it make the end product better by some kind of metric? And what impact has it had elsewhere? Because what you're doing there isn't done in isolation. You know, there are other factors which have influenced how that thing has been achieved. And what are you trying to do? You know, if, if you're trying to go for cinematography and you want people to sit in the seat and go, oh my God, that's beautiful. Yep. Right. That's one thing. If you're, and you're doing Dune and you're doing these massive desert scapes and, you know, these, these incredible buildings and stuff, and you want people to just sit down and look at it and go, that looks amazing, but I don't know why, you know, you go through all these steps to, to sort of give that feeling. Yeah. But if you're recording Avengers, and you're in space mm -hmm. or whatever, right? You you want it to have a different feel and, and you might want it to be more crisp and you might want it to be more cold and you might want it to be sharper yep. and, and those sorts of things, which again, the stuff that I never, until probably two years ago, not anything that ever really particularly entered my mind. I'd, mm. I'd never, you know, like I said, I'd done, you know, some live stuff on TV or whatever, maybe, you know, done a couple of Amdram type plays and stuff when I was like high school age, but I wasn't into like performing or any of, you know, audio, video, none of that stuff. No. It's all the stuff I've, I've learned, I've learned in the last few years, but learning all of that. And, and this is like, look, this is old school for you. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it's just been really interesting to, to, to actually start to understand how, how all that happens. And then, seeing that context in what AI can create. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like, 
people say, oh, but it's not human, so it can't do the same thing. And I'm like, but I could show you, and to take your exact point, I can show you something in a lot of instances written by AI and something written by a person, and you won't know the difference. Exactly. A lot of times you will, mm -hmm. but a lot of but times you won't. And only if you're a professional at whatever that thing is doing. If I gave it to a hundred random people from around the planet, they probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between yeah. them or they'd get it backwards. And I think companies have that classic triangle, don't they? Of time, money, and resources. Um, and if you're to one, then that has a benefit on the other two or a detrimental benefit on the other two, depending on how you look at it. And so if a company is kind of going, well, we used to attain this standard and put, and you know, clients or audiences or, customers came to us because we had that standard if we can achieve a similar standard but by using ways of working that enable us to achieve it but for less money it takes us less time you know less people why wouldn't you want to do that you know i mean again the psychology of that is a completely different conversation which we've touched on but that's for somebody else right um but but i think the the advantages of using AI are untold. We haven't explored them enough yet as a society um, or individuals, actually, to understand where the end game is with it, what it's capable of doing, positively and negatively. You know, we were talking about deep fakes earlier, but we're talking about, you know, my, my son and my family and you know, friends of ours, creative industries, whatever, been able to do things that they couldn't do before. Um, do things faster, do things cheaper, um, do things better in some cases. So you've got that example of, you know, the lad in his bedroom with his guitar wanting to create um, uh, an epic sounding track. He can do that now, uh, even better than he could do with Pro Tools in his own bedroom because he's limited at that point to acoustics. Whereas now you can clean that all up. You can get rid of echoes in the background, all this, you know, really easily. Make it sound like, name your favorite artist, copy. Whatever you want, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I want to sound like that, you know, guitar tones, all this kind of thing. Um, and for me, in our industry, um, AI is, I mean, I don't know whether I'm making this too simple or not, but it's just another tool that we have at our disposal and we can choose whether to implement it or not. And I think ultimately, this is where we just have to be able to sit back and kind of go, right, what do we think is the right thing to do and allow, us to allow ourselves the time and the freedom to be able to do that? Because AI mightn't always be the right thing to use in a certain application, um, but it might be. And if it is, why wouldn't you want to do it? You know, we have to be brave enough as, as societies and cultures to understand that change is inevitable always. And so it's having that capacity to adapt, which I think is important, um, and to accept, to question, but also and challenge um, either our peers or ourselves. Um, to just make sure that what we're doing is being done for the right reasons. Uh, we can't always make that choice ourselves because, of course, there are big old companies who are spending a lot of money in convincing us to do things in a certain way. You go into any supermarket and the first thing you see is the, what, the thing they want to buy most, right? So there's a lot of psychology behind that. Um, but it's time. And I think that's the thing, regardless of what phase of humanity we're in, there has to be a certain amount of time that is dedicated to making sure that what we're unleashing on and for ourselves is right and proper. As we know, you know, the, the developers in the internet and AI said, you know, we didn't necessarily think that this would be the intended use of it in some respects. But it's too late at that point because it's out there and people who've got minds that work differently to theirs are using it in ways that they never dreamed of. But that's just if you're going to be in that seat and are going to be developing stuff for humanity to use, then there has to be an understanding and an assumption and a willingness to know that it will be used by people who want to use it in ways which aren't creative and constructive and for the greater good. Um, and they need to work alongside each other. So that's that's my view on it, really. That's an awesome place to end the, the sort of formal discussion, I think, because we're also right at an hour. I do, before we finish up completely though i do like to ask people um in my question of the year and i've said this before but my question of the year 
for people is when you when you use AI like a chat GPT or something, I assume you've used chat GPT in just to play around with, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, on one or two occasions. Yeah. yeah. So when you talk to AI, do you are you polite to it? Do you think it's important oh. to be polite or do you just talk to it like it's a machine? See, the the really interesting thing is to hear my children saying please and thank you to Siri yeah. or to Alexa. Um, and I think they assume with their younger naivety that you need to behave similarly to a, um, a, um, an AI as you would do to a human. They don't differentiate between the two. Um, I think they'll probably unwittingly be a lot of research carried out into how many people treat it with respect um, or just see it as a machine. Machines don't have feelings, right? Exactly. Um, so why should yeah. you be polite and kind uh, to it? Um, it's there to work for you like a hoover. Um, and so why should you transplant your the ways that you deem acceptable in terms of etiquette onto a hoover or similar? You wouldn't. So why should you do it to, to AI? So to, to me, um, I'm very much, again, on the middle ground, as you probably expect, because my children are quite often in earshot and I want them to know that you should always be polite um, because you never know who you're dealing with and, and you want to be consistent in your approach with dealing with anything. Anything, yep, totally agree. I think that's a good way to approach it. And the, this came up because I, I saw an article by a lady who said that she was asking this question sort of as well, like, should I be polite to it or not? And the reason it came up is because she said I would use like Copilot to help me when I got stuck on working through a coding problem. And we're flying a plane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'd be different. And, uh, and, and she said, you know, I would ask it, or give it some code and say, can you help me figure out what's wrong with this? And then it would come back with an answer and it would actually fix the problem. And she said she felt gratitude, mm -hmm. but she didn't know what to do with it. And I thought that was such an interesting way to express yeah. that funny interaction that but you again, have, because you know, that's, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Cause it helps you. And it's like, if, if I ask you like, you know, like happened yesterday, mm -hmm. you know, if I ask for some help and then you come and help me, I, I feel gratitude. I'm like, oh man, that's amazing. Thank you very much for your mm -hmm. time. I, and mm -hmm. I really, I appreciate that. But if it's AI, like, what do you do with that? You can't, it so doesn't very, care. It's very, very quickly, because I know we're going to wrap up soon, but um, you know, you've got a uh, an entire generation of people, not just children, adults as well, who have been playing things like FIFA, right? Um, so you go to traditional football match. I'm not a football fan per se. Um, and something bad happens on the pitch. Um, and you have a very vocal response. There's an adrenaline which comes up, um, and that adrenaline surfaces and comes out because of that vocal response, you know, and there's a collection of, there's a collective around you who have the same response. So you have that notion of kind of um, tribalism. You're playing FIFA, you sat in a chair at home, um, and something happens on the screen in front of you, and the adrenaline's risen, and where does it go? You don't know what to do with it. You know, you're shouting at a TV screen for no reason. And people who are walking outside are probably hearing, what's going on in that house? Why is he being so abusive? Who is he being abusive to? It's to scream. And so again, you know, it's, it's how the brain is able to process the feelings that it has for something which hasn't been around long enough for us to have blueprints for. And that, I think, is an ongoing discussion, which we can't resolve today. No, we definitely can't resolve today. But that's a really good, that's an interesting way to think about it as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to put that in my, um, in my catalog of thoughts on that particular topic and, and, and have a think about that one, because it's a really good example. And we haven't, you're right, we haven't even, we haven't even got to the point where we can deal with video games, much less than AI that that seemingly can talk back to us and has mm -hmm. more human traits. What seemingly. if AI says to you, don't be rude? Exactly. Well, and somebody else had a point that where they said, you know, 
I'm always polite to it because every interaction we have with it is training it just like a child. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if we want it to be nice to us, we need to be nice to it because if it starts seeing that everybody's mean all the time and that's how everybody interacts, then that model is going to train itself to be mean. And it could be psychologically profiling us. In, t- in t- 10 years' time, we might get a, 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 something through the post to say, hang on a minute, you're this type of person because you've reacted with an AI this way, so we know you to be that kind of person. So you're likely then to end up doing this kind of you know, um, crime and end up in that kind of prison. So here's your life panned out in front of you. Yeah. I mean, I jokingly say <laughs> that I just I want it to know that I'm a nice person. So when it takes over, it's going to go, oh, well, Dave was always nice to me, so <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to bother him too much. But that guy over there was a real dick, so I'm going to go get him. That's it. We're done. <laughs> Evolution sorted. Done. <laughs> there we go. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Adam, we could probably go. We could pull a Joe Rogan if we wanted to and go for like three hours, but I think we've You're both got other things to do. That was amazing. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Would you like to give a shout out? I mean, I'll have your company name and stuff in uh-huh. the in the show notes, but uh, if you'd like to give a shout out, tell everybody where to go, where they can find you. Uh, so we are, well, firstly, I just like to say, I agree. I mean, this discussion has been it's been lovely chatting to you. It's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much indeed for having me on. It's, it's very much appreciated. Um, and um, on a podcast to do uh, on a subject which I have limited knowledge of as well, but hopefully I've offered some kind of insight, I'm not sure. Um, but in terms of shout outs, um, it's um, fundamentally, I guess it's just my website. You know, it's aerophon.com, A-I-R-A-P-H-O-N for November. Um, we're an audio uh, post-production company specializing in producing um, audio for TV, podcast, and digital assets. Um, one eye um, on the future, one eye on the past. Um, and uh, hopefully then we'll get to uh, work with some lovely, lovely people as we're currently doing and, and see where the world takes us. Awesome. Brilliant. Thanks, Adam. Take care. Have a good day, man. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Yeah, Bye-bye. Yeah, Creatives with AI is a proud member of the AI Podcast Network. To stay up to date with current episodes and show information, subscribe to their newsletter at podcastnetwork.ai. And don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast platform so you'll always get the episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks again for listening and stay curious.